I'm going to ask now that you take God's word in your hands and turn to the Gospel of Mark. And we find ourselves closing out this series. In fact, uh, next week will be our final week in the series of Mark. And for the last eight months, we have studied this Gospel and tried to glean truths about the ministry of Jesus and his love uh, for us and his desire to bring us the abundant Christian life that was found in God and through his Son, uh, Jesus Christ. And this is uh, no more clearly seen this love than in our passage this morning as we look at Mark's words concerning the crucifixion. In the greatest gift and sacrifice, Jesus would endure the cross, all of its trouble, all of its pain, all of the abuse that the world could throw at it. Jesus would endure it for one singular purpose, and that was to glorify his Father, our God in heaven, through the redemption of sinful man. Now tomorrow, as a country, we celebrate Memorial Day. We remember those who lost their lives in defending this fine country and the freedoms that we have come to love and enjoy. And it is good and it is right for us as a people to give thanks when sacrifice and duty are shown. And on this weekend where we celebrate and remember and commemorate the brave fallen men and women, we give thanks to those who have served, who are still living. We come to a text this morning that I think is quite fitting. A text that speaks of incredible sacrifice, of incredible honor, of incredible valor. And as great as that of our soldiers, all that sacrifice and duty and the life that was given up, Can I say this morning that all of that in some ways pales in comparison to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross of Calvary. As we explore Calvary, as we explore this crucifixion, as we remember Christ the fallen, I want us to notice three things this morning. But before I do, let me just take a moment to lead us in a time of prayer. Father God, we come before you and Lord, we open your word this morning. And Lord, I know there's a lot of things that are going on in our lives. There's a lot of events. There's a busyness. Summer is upon us. But Lord, in the moments that we have this morning, they're few. And yet, Lord, I pray that they would be substantial. They would be life-changing. Lord, not because of what I say, but Lord, because of what your word says. Lord, I pray that as we take a look at that cross, as we look deeply into the motive of your love and your compassion for going to that cross, that we would become fresh and anew in our desire to love and honor you. And Lord, I pray for those that have never trusted Christ as their Savior, as they experience the cross, maybe for the first time, that today would be the day that they give their life to you. And as a result of that, that they would experience true grace and true mercy in their hour of need. Now, Lord, speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we explore Calvary, the crucifixion, as we remember Christ, the fallen Savior, we explore, first of all, something I'd like to call the weight of the cross. The weight of the cross. Now, historians tell us that the cross itself, the wooden fixture by which Jesus would find himself hung on, would weigh about 300 pounds. 
Now, typically, the victim would only carry the crossbar, the horizontal bar, uh, to the hill. And that would weigh somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 100 pounds. The condemned would carry that crossbar outside the city where there were upright beams that were permanently placed by Roman authorities as a reminder to the absurdity of rebelling against the Roman Empire. So every time you would come into Jerusalem, you would see these upright beams and they would be a reminder to everyone not to mess with the Romans. And while the weight of the cross and the difficulty of the journey that Jesus would have, walking out to the place that would be called the skull, while it would be daunting for the most athletic of any of us in this room to fully understand what I mean by the weight of the cross, we have to understand a little bit more than just simply the timber that was on Jesus's back. The weight of the cross is seen, first of all, I would like you to write down in his physical agony, the physical agony of the cross. In our text this morning, starting in verse 20, let's look and, and, and read It says, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, were passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each one would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews, and they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. We're told in verse 19, notice for a moment, in verse 19 that Jesus is led away to be crucified. While Mark shares little about it, we must remember that what Jesus has just endured would put any of us in a coffin already. Because after being tried by Pilate, the scripture says that Jesus would be scourged or flogged. This idea of scourging was the legal preliminary to every Roman execution. Women, Roman senators, and soldiers of valor were the only ones exempt from this. The usual instrument was a short whip, as you can see on the screen before you. A short leather whip, and it had uh, two sets of devices attached to it. Small metal balls that would be used as the individual was whipped to bruise and bring contusions to the body of the one who was being whipped, And then they would take small pieces of bone, usually sheep bone, which were splintered bones, that would be used as the whipping took place to grip a hold of the skin and literally rip it off. Now what would happen is, is the man would be stripped, as can be seen. He would be set naked before a post. He would be handcuffed, if you will, to the top of the post as is seen And the Roman legionnaires, usually two of them, would alternate, one on the left and one on the right, taking the whip, whipping, and then snatching back to begin to create the whipping process of ripping the skin literally off the the one who was going to be crucified's back. As a result of that, what would happen is is it would literally, from the middle of of the back on out, it would rip the skin into ribbons of skin, 
And it would cause, of course, great pain. The lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce ribbons of bleeding flesh. You would lose great amounts of blood, which would set you into shock. And, of course, the extent of blood loss would be determined as to how long the victim was going to survive on the cross. Now, the Scriptures tell us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that Jesus' flogging was extremely difficult and hard. We're not known if Jesus would experience the 39 lashes that was according to the Jewish law for flogging or that it exceeded it according to Roman, uh, that the Roman law exceeded that of the Jewish law. During this time, after Jesus would be whipped, the Roman soldiers would mock him. Here is this king, this king of the Jews. And look at him now, slouched against a pillar, naked and beaten to a bloody pulp. They would spit on Jesus. They would strike him on his head with a wooden staff. And they would put a robe on him and a crown of thorns. And they would mock him. This intense pain, the blood loss, would bring Jesus to a point of shock. The physical and mental abuse, not only by the Jews, but the Romans. The lack of food and water. The lack of sleep would cause Jesus to be in an incredibly weakened state. And so even before the crucifixion, even before we get to our text, we need to understand that Jesus is in a place probably at best in serious condition, if not at a point of critical condition. Now notice we see this, and Mark doesn't share a lot of this, but notice in verse 20 the text tells us that Jesus was led out to be crucified. They led Jesus to the place where he would be crucified. But now we are told in verse 21 that Jesus is no longer able to carry the cross. And who can blame him? And they're going to ask Simon to come. But I want you to notice verse 22. Because while Mark doesn't share a lot of the details surrounding this, it helps us understand the physical condition of Jesus. In verse 22, it says, after saying in verse 20, they led him out. It says in verse 22 that they brought Jesus. You see, we get this idea that Jesus somehow is just kind of staggering to the cross. But most biblical scholars believe that Jesus wasn't staggering to the cross, but he was unable to even walk to the cross, that people were taken, and whether it was soldiers or bystanders, to help Jesus get to the cross. He was failing, and he was failing fast. And it says that Jesus would then come to the place of the cross. And right when you think that enough had been done, Jesus would only begin the journey of being crucified. But what was it like to be crucified? Well, they had set up crosses that would be placed in a place called the skull, Golgotha. It was outside of the city along a major trade route. And Golgotha was named the place of the skull because of the look of the hill and some of the caves and indentations that gave the impression of sunken eyes and mouth, so it would look like a skeletal skull. And Mark tells us that Jesus would be crucified. He doesn't share anything more about it because in the first century, there was no need to speak of such an activity. Everybody knew about it. And why give all the gory details? But in our 21st century Western society, we need to understand a little bit more about it. Crucifixion was not something that the uh, Romans invented. In fact, the Persians did a couple centuries before the time of Jesus. But what the Romans did was perfect it and use it more than any other empire in the known world. 
And they would use it as a mode of capital punishment. And the reason why the Romans loved it was it produced a slow death while sustaining the maximum amount of pain and suffering for the one who was being crucified. The victim whose body had been torn apart by the scourging now would carry that cross and that crossbar, as you can see. And he would carry that to the place where that crossbar would be attached to a vertical post. And then as a result of that, what we see next on our slide is that his hands would be nailed with spikes that would be between five to seven inches long. Jesus' wrist would be uh, nailed to the crossbeam. That nail, if you can see, will go through parts of bone and will go through especially uh, the ligaments and the median nerve that would cause the hand to clench because of the radical nerve pain that was happening. The excruciating pain of having your hands put to the cross with spikes would be more pain than many of us have ever endured. But notice as you move on that we would see it's not just the arms that find themselves being nailed, but the foot is as well. The feet would be placed one on top of the other, and then one of those five to seven inch spikes would then be put between the second and third toe, and a nail would be driven through to hold the person up. Again, striking nerves and tissues, creating all kinds of extreme pain. And yet the funny thing is, if you will, funny, is this had nothing to do with the crucifixion. The real purpose of the crucifixion, this was only to hold the person up there because the way that the Romans wanted to see you die was suffocation. Notice the next slide that we have involves a person being hung on a cross, and there's Jesus. And then we've got Jesus, and he in many ways is elongated and then in some ways is pressed up. And you would say, why is that? Because what the Romans learned was that if you had the body extended at the top part of the torso, but the body scrunched up in the bottom half, it would be nearly impossible for you to breathe. Now, you may be able to inhale, but you would never be able to exhale. And so the mode of crucifixion, the mode of death for the one who was crucified was suffocation. But they gave you just enough room to be able to breathe. And this is how our Lord, how our Savior died. Now, if he wanted to breathe, what would have to happen is, is that Jesus would have to place all of his weight on the feet and push on that spike to be able to lift up his body so that his diaphragm might be extended so that he may be able to take a breath in and a breath out. Now, you say, well, Jesus was on the cross for hours. Think of how many moments, how many times in a minute you breathe in and you breathe out. As a result of dehydration, Jesus would experience horrific muscle cramps. You say, Tim, how do you know all of this? Go to, to the Journal of American Medicine, and they have an incredible study, and maybe we'll throw it on uh, an email and send it out to you, where secular doctors have looked at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and they come away and say, it is horrific what this Jesus endured. So Jesus would find himself on the cross, unable to breathe, unable to move, in excruciating pain. And historians tell us that if that wasn't bad enough, birds of prey would be flocking over. Vultures and large animals, flying animals would be watching over. It is known by Roman historians that many men who were crucified would have their flesh ripped off by those birds of prey. And even some men lost their eyes because they were gouged out. 
This is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet, if we were to simply just look at the physical agony, we would miss it. Now, before I move on, the Roman statesman Cicero, well known to many, would say the following. He says, it's a crime to bind a man. To scourge him would be an act of wickedness. To execute a man quickly is murderous. But what shall I say about crucifixion? An act so abominable and heinous, it is impossible to find any words to adequately explain it. And while you would think this would be enough, the scripture goes on and it says it's not just physical agony, but notice the emotional abuse this morning. The emotional abuse. In verses 29 through 32, we are told, that those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from that cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He said, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then a third group, those crucified with him, also heaped insults at him. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Many believe naked. Many believe exposed to all of the world. And to add insult to injury, Jesus is now hearing it from people who pass by, who are walking along, and their response isn't to look with great trembling and fear, but they mock Jesus. Hey, weren't you the one who said you would do this and that? Do it now. And then his old enemies, the chief priests and scribes and rulers of the law, speak amongst themselves. Well, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? And then to think... If anybody would stay quiet, if, everybody, if anyone would keep their mouth shut, it would have been the two guys that are hung next to him. And the scripture says they reviled him. I mean, you would think that you're about to die. You would worry, as my mom would always say, worry about yourself. And yet they don't. So Jesus experiences this physical pain and now the emotional response. He's watching his mom and a couple ladies that he has come to love grieve over him at his time of death. The emotional abuse that he took is amazing. Notice there is creation's activity. During all that's going on, the text tells us in verse 33 that at the sixth hour, darkness comes over the whole land until the ninth hour. In Matthew 27, 51, we are told that a great earthquake takes place as well. And if it wasn't enough for Jesus to endure all of this and all that was going on, God would see fit to bring darkness to the world. And Mark would speak about this cosmic phenomenon. Now Mark would speak about this darkness, and how do we know that what Mark is saying is true? Well, we have to go again to secular historians, people that, if you will, don't have a, a place in the fight of the historicity of Jesus and so we look to secular historians. And there was one in Rome named Phlegon who wrote in his history the following words, who lived during the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. He said, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse 
that happened during the middle of the day. In fact, the sixth hour, where it turned the day into utter darkness, where the stars in the heaven over Rome could be clearly seen. And he says, and then the ground began to tremble. We have the physical pain, the emotional pain. We have the cosmic activities taking place. And yet all of that would pale in comparison to the final one, and that is the spiritual anguish. In verses 34 through 37, the text tells us that at the sixth hour, darkness came over uh, the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, they said. And it says with verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. As the darkness overtook the area of Jerusalem and the known world, Jesus would remain remarkably quiet. During those times, we have seven cries from the cross that Jesus would articulate that are seen in the Gospel of John. But the one that Mark responds to, the one that Mark remembers and brings to our remembrance are the words that are taken right out of the mouth of David in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, Jesus on his 33 years of life had come to know pain and suffering during different times of his human life. He had never at any point had one iota of separation with the Father. But in that moment on the cross, in a moment of darkness, the Father would do such a thing that seems unbelievable at best. He would forsake the one he loved. Because at that moment, Scripture tells us that Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf. Jesus had gone from being purity personified to being a wretched, filthy sinner, not of his own doing, because of you and because of me. Not just one or two of our sins, but every one of the sins that we would commit, every evil thought, every careless word, Every sinful action from the moment of our birth to the end of our lives exponentially added upon the back of Jesus. And at that moment, Jesus goes from purity personified to being saturated with sin. And the Father turns away. Why does he turn away? The reason why Jesus has his Father, why God the Father turns away is because the Father's about to do something that is so unbelievable that human writers would never be able to speak of it. But we are told by the Apostle Paul and Peter that on the cross, God the Father would pour out all of his indignant anger and wrath upon his Son. All of the judgments, all of the consequences of our sin in that moment would be placed on the back of Jesus Christ. Every ounce of that judgment and condemnation would fall on the shoulders of Christ. What a terrible thing. And yet Isaiah 53 says that it pleased 
the Lord to do this. Why? So that Paul may be able to write in Romans chapter 8 that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Christ endured all of this. The Father poured out his wrath on Jesus so that he might redeem you and me. That was the reason. Because that would bring the Father in heaven great glory. I'm so glad that Jesus in our text doesn't call the bluff of the people who were mocking him and come down from that cross. Well, that would have made headlines in the Jerusalem times. It would force us to continue to still be in our sin. And Jesus hung on that cross, not returning the reviling that was coming his way so that he may take care of and pay in full our sins. Now let's move to then what we see next. And that is that with the cross, we see our way back to Christ. Let's take a step back for a moment. Amidst all of the events that are happening on the cross, and you would think that Mark would focus in on Jesus. Of course, he has been the main character of of all of his gospel. And yet what Mark seems to do is give, long before the panoramic view of a camera, that he would give us a 360-degree view of all that was going on. And Mark begins to talk about what is going on in the lives and the things that are involved around the crucifixion. We have the crowd. We have Simon. We have the curtain being torn. We have the centurion's proclamation. We have all of this taking place. And in it, I want us to notice that as we put together this story, We see the story of our redemption. The first thing I want you to notice is in the crowd, it shows us our hostility. We begin to wonder as Christians, as we look back and say, how could people do that? How could they hang a person, a person who has been beaten to a bloody pulp? How can they sit there and jeer and mock and abuse? Who in their right mind would do so? We begin to forget that we too, in our sinful lives, would utter words like crucify him. We would utter words that would say, come off that cross, you saved others, now save yourself. Now why would they do this? Jesus, who had cared for people, who had healed people, who had called people to follow the God that the Israelites had become so proud of following, Jesus wasn't sharing anything that was revolutionary. It's the same thing the patriarchs and the prophets had articulated for years to the ancestors of these people. And yet because of their sin, when given the chance to take a murderer over one who healed and raised the dead, they choose Barabbas. And even those who were closest to him, who vowed that they would never leave him nor forsake him, are more worried about their own skin than that of their dear friend. Brothers and sisters, Jesus showed the world love, and the only thing we as sinners have shown him is our contempt. And Paul reminds us of this. Listen to the description that Paul gives of humanity and why we would put someone like Christ on the cross. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. 
Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Furthermore, since they did not seek it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what they ought not be done. Therefore, they have been filled with all kinds of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, ruthless, and heartless. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do the very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Brothers and sisters, never let us forget that in our sinful lives, we are there at the cross and we are applauding what the Romans are doing. Hit them, beat them, kill them. And yet, Christ stayed on that cross. Notice the second thing I want you to see is that the cross bearer reminds us of our activity. Going back to verse 21, we are told of a man named Simon. He's from a place of Cyrene, northern Africa. So he probably looks a little different than most of the Jewish people that were in Jerusalem. And that may have been the very fact or reason why he was picked for such a job. And it says that he was passing by in his way. He's an innocent bystander. He's come from the country and he's forced by the Romans to carry the cross. He doesn't want to be involved in this. And he's forced. Another, passage, or another version says he's compelled to do so. Now the amazing thing is, is this is Simon's first encounter with Jesus. And what many commentaries and scholars believe that this would not be his last. Mark, notice what Mark says. He says that this man is the father of Alexander and Rufus. You say, well, why is that so important? Mark was writing to the Romans and to the church at Rome with his gospel, to a Gentile population. And if we look to the book of Romans, in Romans 16, 13, Rufus is mentioned with his mother. And most scholars believe that this Rufus is the connecting point for the Roman church to the crucifixion. You know good old Rufus, he's in your small group. He was there. His daddy carried the cross. Now what happened that this man who had no encounter with Jesus goes from being that to a man whose children and his wife would be mentioned in the, God, in the book of Romans? Let me tell you something. When we come face to face with Jesus, everything changes. And in this, Simon does something that each of us are called to. You want to stop living a life of hostility? and be able to uh, take on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and apply it to your life, it involves this. It involves an activity that Simon did, and that was to carry the cross. Jesus would say in Mark 8, 34 through 38, if anyone come after me, he must deny himself and take up the cross daily. And that's what Simon did, all of it in a physical way, but at some point later on, in light of all that he saw, he must have done it in a spiritual way as well. You see, Jesus went to the cross for us. We should be hanging there. Simon should have been hanging there. And all Jesus asks of us is not to die on the cross, but to carry the cross. That's all Jesus wants us to do. He'll take care of the sacrifice. 
All he wants us to do is to follow him, to live like him, to deny ourselves and to put him first in our lives. It means giving up our pursuits. It means giving up our self-promotion. It means giving up the world in exchange for promoting Christ and his kingdom. And it will mean standing for Christ even when every part of us says we ought to back away and bow out. Brothers and sisters, the, life to, the, the path to eternal life is a life of taking up the cross. It isn't easy. Don't let anybody ever, don't let any pastor tell you that the gift of salvation and the point of salvation is easy. It will cost you more than you know. But Jesus says, come, take my yoke. It is light. And it will give you rest. Because we no longer will have to strive for ourselves, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, we may strive with the power of Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. We see next that the curtain that was torn speaks of our accessibility. In verse 38, Mark tells us, while it's not happening where uh, all of the action is taking place, over in the temple in Jerusalem, not too far from Golgotha, the curtain in verse 38 of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. For those who aren't aware of Jewish worship, the temple had a large area uh, where people could hang out and, and the church, or I'm sorry, the temple activities could go on. But there was a sacred place. It was called the Holy of Holies, and no one entered into that. And it was separated by a heavy curtain. And the only one who would go in there once a year was the high priest, who would go in and take in the sacrifice for the people, for the purification of sin. It was so important that nobody go in there that when the high priest went in there, they would literally tie a rope to the leg of the high priest because if he had a heart attack, if he did something that would be an affront to God and fell dead, nobody was to go in there and they would just literally drag him out. Nobody was to go in there. And yet at the moment that Christ gives up his spirit, that curtain from top to bottom ripped. It was torn in two. And our access to God, the intimacy that, that we did not have under the law and the Old Testament way of things was now opened up that we may experience intimacy and love and a connection with our God that we had never had before because Jesus Christ paved, as we've talked about, our way back to God. He opened it. He took care of it. So that now, even now today, that he is interceding for us to the Father because he promises that he's going to finish the work that was started on the cross and he'll bring to fruition at the day of our glorification. Notice the next thing we see is the centurion's words reaffirm our certainty. The centurion was the overseer. Notice what verse 39 says. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard this cry and saw how Jesus died, he said, surely this man is the son of God. The centurion was a man of great authority. He presided over as many as 500 to 1,000 troops. And he had been given the task of seeing Jesus be put to death, and that's exactly what he did. It wasn't his first time of doing so. He had seen some heinous criminals die some ugly deaths. What he had seen now in the life of Jesus 
and how Jesus responded changed, changed him profoundly. He had not been a follower of Jesus, probably knew very little about Jesus, but what he had seen and what he had experienced told him one thing. This Jesus is who he said he was. This Jesus is the Son of God. What I have seen forces me to utter words unspeakable by a Roman. This man was the Son of God. Can I tell you something? For you to experience the cross and the saving power of Jesus Christ, it demands that you respond in that same way. Jesus cannot be a good teacher. Jesus cannot just be a friend to the fallen. Jesus can't just be a moral man who teaches us a pattern of living. No, Jesus Christ cannot be even a prophet. Jesus Christ must be the Son of God in our hearts because if he is not, no man can pay for another man's sins. He's the Son of God. And this man sees it and believes it. Have you believed this morning? Have you have given your life over to him in that way? If you haven't, then let me tell you something. All of the pain, all of the torture, all of the spiritual anguish that comes from a God forsaking Christ will one day be for you. The point of grace is here, that Christ endured all this for you and for me. But if you don't trust Christ as your Savior, if you don't live for him, then there will be a day where God the Father will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And in that moment, you will experience what Christ experienced for a moment, the forsaking of God and the ushering of you out of his presence. And it won't happen for a moment, but Scripture says it will happen for all of eternity. I'm going to close with this because our time is short. As we look at all of Calvary, we see one more thing, and that it proclaims God's sovereignty. I would be remiss not to remind all of us how amazing all of this is that we've seen. The prophecies of the Old Testament prophets concerning Christ's death on a cross of being crucified, even though they never used the word because the word hadn't been invented because crucifixion in the Old Testament hadn't been invented. And yet the Old Testament speaks of it over and over again. The words of Jesus being written years beforehand, the cosmic occurrences that would take place, even down to the minute details of Jesus being numbered with transgressors and not a bone being broken was all a part of God's plan. I want you to remember and be aware of this, that in the moments of the cross that seemed where chaos was at its worst, God was completely and utterly in control of all things. And I would even go as far as to say that he was not just involved in the moments of time, but he was sovereign over the responses of both the sinner and the saints alike. How could the centurion come to that place where he would look at the cross and say, truly this is the Son of God? God had to show him. This wasn't something that he just put A plus B equals C. Well, a guy getting beat up and abused and hung on a cross must equal that he's the Christ. No, God opened his heart and with faith he was able to believe. 
and be able to utter those words. And what a response for us that in moments where we find ourselves at our weakest, at moments where it seems where all hope is gone, in moments where chaos seems to ensue, in our world where it seems that evil seems to prevail, let us remember the cross. Let us remember that in the moment where it seemed that the world was coming undone, God the Father was doing his greatest work. And in that moment, and in that place of what seemingly was chaos and trouble, God would send his son to fulfill his plan. And in doing, when the place seemed as dark as it could come, Christ came as a light. Some of you today are struggling. You're enduring all kinds of struggles. In some ways you may be saying, I'm bearing my own cross. I think you'll reconsider that now after this message a little bit. But you're feeling like you're lost. You're feeling like there's nowhere to turn. Understand that the place that we turn in our time of chaos and trouble is to the cross. And here's the amazing thing. When we encounter the cross, when we go to the cross, we are told that God turns no one away. He says, I will no wise cast any of you out. Just come. And my response to you today in closing is, for those who have come to Christ, who know Christ, don't forget the cross. Make it a part of your daily ritual of understanding and remembering what Christ did. It's the greatest sacrifice. It's greater than just simply celebrating it one day at the end of May, but to have a memorial day each and every day remembering what Christ did. And for those who have never trusted Jesus, come to the cross. Humbly, and honestly, tell Jesus, thank you for taking my place. And because you did that, I'm willing to take up the cross you ask of me, and I'm willing to follow you. And there's a lot more that we want to share with you about that. So don't leave today without coming to that place of response. Come talk to me. Talk to the person sitting next to you. Talk to the people at the Welcome Center. Talk to someone and say, how can I inherit the eternal life through Jesus Christ's blood? on the cross of Calvary. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, what an amazing day in history. Lord, I am so thankful for it because I no longer am lost, but now I am found. I no longer am blind, but now I see. I am no longer guilty, but now I am innocent. And Lord, it is not because of me. It is not because of the righteous things that I do, but according to your mercy, that you saved me. You demonstrated your love for us in this. While I was still a sinner, you sent your son Jesus to die in my place. Lord, let me never forget it. Let me never boast in anything but the cross. Because, Lord, we are just filthy, rotten, dirty sinners who by the grace of God was given a new life in Christ. Lord, I pray that all of us would respond in that way. Whether we've known Jesus for a long time or today is the day of our salvation, that we would respond with gratitude and change lives because of what you have done. Now, Lord, send us off from this place into that world of chaos and trouble, that world that you ministered in, so similar, so much the same. 
and send us out with a renewed heart for the lost. Because you didn't just come to save me or just the people that are in this room, but you said that you came that many may know the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, allow the crucifixion to compel us to share the good news of your grace and mercy to a world that needs it. Lord, we thank you again for this time to center our thoughts and our attention on your word. Now send us off as your missionaries to love our neighbors, to love each other, and foremost, to love you to the point of transformation. We love you and praise you. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.